Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hello, everybody. And I'm Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. Joining us on the podcast today is Don Burnett, CEO and co-founder of Kodiak Robotics, the self-driving truck company that recently received funding from Bridgestone and BMW iVentures. Leslie, uh, self-driving trucks obviously are are the big thing right now, I think, in the autonomous driving space. Uh, they've supplanted robo-taxis for sure. Um, we've seen a lot of news from competitors of Kodiaks like Plus and Too Simple, Waymo and Aurora are, are emphasizing their truck operations. Uh, it seems new, but obviously this goes back uh, at least a few years. What do you remember from the, uh, from the early days of self-driving trucking? Oh, gosh, you're making me sound old here, Pete. Um, what I remember most is before I became editor of Shift, I worked on automotive news TV. So I did a lot of scripts. And we had a script one time that I really enjoyed writing. And this was about Daimler. Back in 2015, I believe, Daimler drove an autonomous truck across Hoover Dam. And Daimler also received the first autonomous vehicle license for a truck in Nevada. So that was pretty interesting. And we've seen these experiments sort of accelerate over the years. About a year after Daimler drove the truck across Hoover Dam, we heard about this autonomous beer delivery by Otto, O-T-T-O, which, uh, as I understand it, has some relationship to the uh, to Don Burnett, who we're going to be talking to um, pretty soon. That's right. Don was one of the auto co-founders, along with Anthony Lewandowski and uh, and Nancy Sun from Ike, who was on the podcast uh, probably about six months ago, if not longer. Uh, but yes, Auto, along with Daimler, I think were were the two big big splashes we heard in, initially in the self driving truck realm, and uh, of course. Uber went on to acquire Auto and and subsequently shut the self-driving truck division down. Uh, and Don uh, Don talked extensively about some of the lessons learned from that experience. So that uh, that that's something that that we'll hit on here soon, in just a few short minutes. One thing I'm curious about, Pete, you mentioned that that um, Kodiak had gotten funding from BMW, iVentures, and Bridgestone. We've um, talked to Bridgestone before, not on the podcast, but I'm wondering what is Bridgestone's connection to autonomous vehicles? That is a great question, Leslie. Uh, it has a lot to do with the fact that for both autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, uh, essentially, just like every other aspect of a car these days, the tire has to be rethought and, and reimagined. So ultimately, there's a lot of intelligence that the likes of Kodiak or other fleet operators can pull off tires and that, that really feeds into their uh, planned fleet operations. Uh, so Don talks a good bit about that, uh, his lessons learned from Otto, and, and much more. So perhaps without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Kodiak Robotics CEO and co-founder, Don Burnett. Don, thanks for making the time this morning. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thanks, Pete. Let's talk about the you know the whole self-driving truck landscape right now. Uh, we have you know obviously some of your competitors are are going to public markets. We have some of the big players in the space uh, emphasizing their self-driving truck operations. 
What what is it right now here in the middle of 2021 that that makes trucking the place where we see a lot of short term uh, promises or you know projections about what's going to happen in terms of self driving technology? That's a great question. I think we're at a pivotal moment in the autonomous vehicle industry as a whole. I most people I think are finally accepting what I believe for a long time, which is that. It's not a question of if this technology is going to happen, but more now a question of when. And, you know, you talked a little bit about the the moves that people were making. I I think ultimately this is a space where there's room for a lot of players to be successful. If you look at the history of the industry, everybody was focused initially on the robo-taxi application for for reasons that are not necessarily grounded in uh, the easiness of tackling that challenge, but more of the promise of what it means for cultures and societies to to have freedom of mobility. And I fully buy into that vision, that dream. I think it's it's a worthwhile goal. It's a worthwhile endeavor. But we have to be honest with ourselves about the practical limitations of the technology We've come a long way as an industry in the last 10 to 12 years, I would say, 10 to 15 years, maybe, depending on, on where you start your, your counting stick. But we've, we've learned where the technology is more directly applicable in terms of the entire mobility space, and we've learned where it's more challenging. And it's been a slow grind for some of us who have been around since the very beginning. But most folks now, I think, like me, believe that narrowing the use case, narrowing the environment, the scope of the challenge into more structured environments uh, where there's fewer actors, there's fewer chaotic things happening is ultimately better for deployments and will lead to more rapid deployments than environments that are less structured. It's it's fairly intuitive, I think, when you when you really when you really think about it. It's been my belief since I think back in 2015 or so that long haul trucking was really going to be one of the first technologically feasible applications of this technology, um, and there wasn't a lot of support for it at the time amongst some of the the bigger players, some of the folks who've been around for a long time. But in the last five or six years, you've seen that that view. Uh, change. I come around to the notion. And I think most large AV or not necessarily large, but established AV players now believe that trucking will be the first application because it is more structured, because it's slightly more controlled, and because there's just fewer instances where things things can go awry. You know, you, you mentioned earlier it was uh, it's a matter of when, but to your point, it's also a matter of where. And you're obviously talking about highways That's being right. that, that more highly structured environment or, or operating design domain where where this makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Can you t- take me back to that 2015, 2016 uh, time frame when when everybody else was still very excited about you know this short term idea of robo taxis? What was it that you saw at that point uh, that that made you think trucking was was the right uh, you know approach, or where you wanted to spend your time? Sure. 
So what most people don't realize about bringing self-driving vehicles to the market, bringing them to production, is that it's really two components. Most people think about the technology side, what I call features and capabilities. So having your car be able to handle X or Y. So handle merges, handle intersections, right turns on red, left turns on, you know, unprotected left turns on green. Those are all what you could classify as features and capabilities. Your car has to be able to handle those if you want to drive in environments where those types of maneuvers are required. Fairly straightforward, fairly obvious. And when people think about the challenge of self-driving, that's what they think about. What most people don't think about is the, uh, the validation side of the challenge. It's not enough to have a vehicle that can make an unprotected left turn. We can, we can do that and we can do it fairly reliably. But what you have to be able to show is that your vehicle can make an unprotected left turn under any circumstances that can possibly arise. And when you start to think about all the variations of circumstances that could possibly arise, you quickly realize that it might not be infinite, but it is a very, very large number. And that's just one example of a maneuver that matters, right? There's all kinds of other things. There's lane following, there's traffic, there's two lane roads, there's bi-directional roads, there's medians, there's no medians, there's right turns. I could go on and on to enumerate all the different driving circumstances and features and capabilities that drivers like you and I have to contend with every day out on the roads during our commutes or when we're going to the grocery store. And when you start to think about the burden of a validation, even after you've designed the product, that burden is extremely high. So I think one of the realizations that I had, and to some extent others had, after three, four, five years of working and banging on the technology is that just getting there on the technological front wasn't going to be enough. In the early days at Google, it was a ton of fun. I loved the project. I was fairly young in my career. I had just come out of school at Carnegie Mellon, and it was a small group of really focused, highly excited and motivated engineers. And we were just pushing the technology. We weren't thinking about business use cases. We weren't thinking about commercialization. We weren't thinking about validation. But the years passed by, uh, two years, three years, four years, you start to really ask yourself, where is this going? Who is this for? What is the use case? How do we actually get it out into people's hands, right? The things that truly matter at the end of the day. And we moved more away from this research mindset, more into a commercialization mindset. And it was in that time that we started to really think hard about what it would take to validate this system in an environment that was essentially unbounded, where anything could happen. And you have many types of actors. All the capabilities I've mentioned up until this point in this conversation doesn't even include pedestrians. And yet pedestrians are one of the biggest challenges when it comes to urban driving for self-driving vehicles, because pedestrians are everywhere, even when they're not supposed to be. And they walk out into the roads and they trick you um, and as humans, we sort of have a feel for where that might happen and how that might happen. And, you know, we're really good at anticipating those types of things. And we're really good at reacting very quickly. Self-driving cars are good at reacting very quickly as well. But you then have to go through that effort of showing all the cases. And it was my belief at the time that both the technology side 
wasn't quite mature enough to really tackle all of those capabilities to a level of reliability that we needed. And the daunting task of the validation was possibly much more difficult than any of us knew at the time. And I think over the last five years, that, that has really come to, to come to bear. I think that's been borne out, if you will. So that was when I started to think about, okay, if we have this validation problem, where can we go with the technology? What application can we find in the real world that has value, that provides a service that people actually need? Where can we go where we can narrow that scope? Not only from a capabilities perspective, but also on the validation side. And you know, you can think about private roads, you can think about uh, parking lots, which actually are, are very difficult. Um, you can think about intermodal facilities, moving crates and containers around and repositioning things, highway environments, urban environments. So we just thought long and hard about it. I thought long and hard about it and ultimately came to the conclusion that uh, semi-trucks on the highway is a very structured environment where we can limit the scope and limit the challenge on the technology side, but also on the validation side. There are just fewer things that can go wrong or that are likely to happen in a highway environment with controlled access where you're, everybody's moving in the same direction and there's clear entrances and clear exits and no intersections. That was an environment that I felt like, okay, if we're going to solve this, that's going to be the application because of this narrowed scope. When you think about that narrowed scope, can you elaborate on what exactly is a truck port and, and how does the idea of a truck port kind of fit into that defined scope that, that you're talking about? Sure. So in order to limit the autonomy operational domain or ODD, as, as we say, to just the highway, you have to have some way of getting onto the highway. Um, traditionally, freight is moved, well, freight is moved all over the place, but the specific targeted use case that we were looking at and have been looking at was this notion of moving freight from distribution to uh, distribution center to other distribution centers. So some refer them as hub to hub, unfortunately, uh, for, from that nomenclature, but really dock to dock. Think about it as, as loading bay to loading bay. But these loading bays are not necessarily positioned on the highway. You have to drive to get to the highway. Um, and Whereas a single highway route might serve many, many different distribution centers, the path from the distribution centers to those highways are not necessarily deterministic, and nor, nor are they necessarily the easy environments that we'd like to limit our scope for autonomy. And so the idea is to create these transfer hubs, these transfer locations that are highway adjacent, directly attached to the on-ramps or very, very close to the on-ramps of the highway. With the idea being that human drivers can continue to move the freight from a distribution center to one of these transfer locations, and then we would swap the trailer onto an autonomous tractor, so we refer to as the, the front of the, the tractor trailer setup, onto an autonomous tractor, and that from that transfer hub, the autonomous tractor could then take off autonomously, get onto the on-ramp of the highway, merge onto the highway, drive hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles down the road, much farther than a human can drive in one limited hours of service. And then they'd pull off on the other side at another transfer hub facility where the same swap would take place. And then a human driver would take it the last, 
the last several miles to the other distribution center. That's the idea for how to break up the load to allow us as technologists to focus purely on the highway aspect of the challenge. I would say ultimately though, we, we will eventually push the technology beyond the highway. So I don't want people to think this is just limited to highway. Um, I still believe in the grand vision of all autonomy everywhere. I want to see robo taxis happen. I want to see uh, autonomous urban uh, driving happen, uh, surface street driving happen, but I think it's going to be staged and starting with the highway makes the most sense. When you think about that, that long-term that you just kind of outlined, what's the breakthrough that is still needed or breakthroughs plural, uh, you know, how do we go from where we are here in 2021 with limited deployments that, that are largely testing to, to this like widespread future of robo taxis and trucks and, and delivery bots and, and everything? Uh, you know, what's needed to take us there? There's been a lot of different advancements in technology that needed to happen to build the rich and mature ecosystem that we have today. So obviously, there's the software and algorithms. And we have a lot of smart software engineers working on those algorithms and, and writing the intelligence, machine learning models, data labeling and training that has gone into, I'd say, the wave of improvement in performance. One of the big challenges of the past used to be perception. But I would argue that perception is no longer the, the long pull. So we have the software that's, that's really come a long way over the last 10 years. We have compute. Compute is an ever-improving um, uh, area of development, and the self-driving industry has benefited from improvements in uh, GPU performance and CPU performance in general compute speed and reliability. So that's been, that's been an unlock that we've had. And then sensors. Sensors are really one of the key um, roadblocks, if you will, to actually deploying this technology at scale. And it's only recently that I feel like we've gotten to the point where we have both the performance in the sensors, the price point that makes this viable, and the reliability that we need to produce these systems at scale. So it's really a combination of the three. And in the past, we haven't had any of the three LiDAR sensors are notoriously super expensive and they break all the time. That's not, and they don't perform particularly well. I think we're seeing that change. We have the sensors, we have the LiDARs, we have the radars, we have the cameras that are high resolution. We have lens technology that is, that is you know, built for automotive grade applications. We have the communication protocol, protocols in place now that ensure high reliability high reliable system integrity and data communication to, within the system that we didn't have in the past. So all of these pieces needed to be in some ways independently developed to bring us toward this ultimate deployment. At the end of the day, I think we are now on the cusp. I think we have everything we need and it's just a matter of players like Kodiak to take those components and put them together into one package to really to bring this to reality. And one of the other things that I think we've discovered along the way that we believe very strongly at Kodiak is that redundancy is ultimately the answer to the problem. If you have a faulty sensor, have a redundant one. If you have a communication bus, have a redundant one. If you have a power supply to your system, have a redundant one. 
Uh, you know, if you re redundant, if, if you make all of your systems redundant um, and your, your vision and your LIDARs and your radars and your compute and your actuation devices are all redundant and you can detect failures and understand degradations throughout the system, that's how you build safety. It's not about capabilities. We are in a lot of ways feature complete. Our system at Kodiak is now driving hundreds of miles at a time without any intervention whatsoever from a safety driver. We're handling construction. We're handling inclement weather. We're doing it day and night. We can handle everything that the highway is throwing at us. It's no longer on the capability side that we need to really push. It's building the redundancy and the hardening of the hardware compute stack. That's really the next step for the industry. And that's what's going to get us to an actual deployment over the next couple of years. Let me ask you a question about those hundreds of miles you've gone without disengagements. And maybe it's kind of a rear view look at the question I just asked you. But to your point, I think Kodiak went 829 miles disengagement free, doing multiple round trips between Dallas and, and Houston. Did you kind of sense that you were getting to that point? Is it like an incremental improvement to that point? Or, or is there a game changer along the way where suddenly you made improvement by, by leaps and bounds that gets you to, to you know, multiple runs without a, a disengagement. It's really interesting to analyze how we got to that point. And um, just to, for, for the sake of the audience, we, we had four back-to-back uh, back -back round trip uh, disengagement-free runs all within the same day. So as you said, um, over 800 miles of uh, where the system performed flawlessly. And when you're driving that far and keep in mind that this is, this is, these trips are like four and a half plus hours straight. So everything has to go perfectly for a very long time. There's a lot of things at the highway um, that on the highway that you encounter construction zones, chain, your map is out of date and th things like that, that you have to contend with. So it's really challenging. If you look at the progression of that we made throughout 2020, it actually looks very much like a hockey stick. It's not quite the gradual incremental improvement that you would you would think you might see in order to get there. And I think that really speaks to the way that a lot of uh, progress is made in this space, which is you hit plateaus and you hit um, areas where you just can't quite break out. And then you, you make a change or a combination of changes that allows you to unlock and you really move to the next tier. You move to the next plateau and your performance really uh, ex accelerates um, if you were to look at it on a, on a chart. And so for us, there were a lot of initiatives that we needed to solve in 2020 to get us to that type of reliability. For instance, I'll give you just a couple examples. Handling stalled vehicles on the shoulder is a really important piece of the autonomy stack that a lot of people don't even ever think about. But from a driver, from a safety driver perspective, there's rules about how you're supposed to handle a vehicle that's pulled over to the side of the road, be it a police vehicle that's pulled someone else over, a stalled vehicle, a flat tire. It doesn't matter. You are supposed to slow down. You should nudge away. And if you can, you should try to make a lane change to give even more space, regardless of what's going on in that, in that scene. And our drivers are very adamant that we have to handle this perfectly every time. If we mess up, if we don't slow down, if we don't detect it, if we don't make the lane change when it's available, they will disengage and they will perform the correct action. And on a given trip from Dallas to Houston, we might see on average five vehicles on the side of the road. Uh, we call them vehicles on shoulder. 
And so you really have to handle them perfectly every single time if you want to get to that level of reliability. So that was a big push that we made in 2020 combined with handling construction zones because on highways, as you probably know, there's always construction going on somewhere. And if you drive enough hundreds of miles, you'll see multiple construction zones no matter no matter what day of the week it is, unless maybe it's on a holiday. And so every single time we drive Dallas to Houston and back, the world has changed almost every day. So being able to handle and have a system that was flexible enough that would allow us to adapt to a changing environment on a day in and day out basis, that was something that took a lot of effort. And without just these two pieces, and there were others, uh, but without just these two pieces, we could barely drive maybe 20 to 30 miles without having uh, a disengagement if we didn't handle one of these things correctly. And so it was a series of multiple technologies and capabilities that we worked on in parallel that all came together around December of last year that allowed us to really uh, you know, jump our performance up to the level that we're at today. And we're continuing to push ahead now with more edge cases, um, tighter, tighter situations and um, more evasive like maneuvers that we still need to, to work on to get, get us to a level of, of actually launching a driverless system. Thinking about construction zones, which you just mentioned uh, in particular, and maybe mapping in general, what, what is your approach to mapping and, and maybe how does that differ from competitors? When we started Kodiak, we made a very deliberate decision that we didn't want to rely on what the industry has now or it's now calls HD maps. And the HD maps is this notion that you go out with all of your sensors, be it LIDAR, camera, radar, whatever it is, and you map lots of fine-grained detail about the environment around you. So typically that means you have a LIDAR view of the world every square five centimeters or so. You know what the road looks like, what its color is, the reflectivity from your LIDAR, like how bright is it? Uh, you annotate where the signs are, where the overpasses are, where all the exits are, the lane ge geography, uh, geometry. If you're in an urban environment, you're going to put things like crosswalks and stop signs and street lights and everything you can possibly annotate about the environment, you put it into your map. And so because the maps contain a lot of great high detailed information, we've come to call it these HD maps. And they're fantastic because what they allow you to do is they allow you to have a have memory about what the world looked like in the map. And then look at what you see around you. You look at the, the trunks of trees, the posts of the signs, the paint on the road, the, the, the K rails and the barriers that you might encounter on the highway. And you piece all of that together and you figure out exactly where you are on your map. And once you know where you are in your map, and we call this localization, once you know where you are in your map, then you can just drive as if you were on a rail on the map. You don't actually drive in the real world. You simply localize onto your map and then you drive within the map. And that gives you a lot of advantages. You don't have to perceive the real world to the level degree of your map. You just rely on your map. But the obvious problem is when the map is out of date. When the map is no longer reflects the world around you, then you have to make this deliberate switch. You have to say, the map is wrong. I'm going to drive based on what, what I see. The problem, though, is that you've developed all of your technology to drive based on a map. And now you're asking your engineers and your team to rewrite all of their algorithms and all of their intelligence to the same level of reliability, but without a map. 
And so after having done this for years and years and years at multiple places, auto, Uber, Google, me and my co-founders, uh, founding engineering team, we came to the table and said, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to build a system that can drive based on what it sees live at all times. And we'll, we'll build a map with only the key information that is really helpful for other types of, of navigation. So we use maps, but they're much sparser maps. They contain just the basic lane level connectivity information. And this is helpful for knowing what's coming up ahead, for instance. So there's a turn up ahead. There's an exit coming up ahead. My, my destination is 200 miles up ahead, and I'm going to need to make some lane changes because I know there's some lane closures, et cetera. That type of information is very helpful, but our system is always detecting the lanes, just like a human does, identifies lanes, neighboring lanes, and builds that that environmental model on the fly. So when we enter a construction zone and the lanes have shifted relative to yesterday, no problem. Just like you would, you see the lanes go left, our truck follows them and goes left. We can still detect when our map is wrong, but because from the beginning, we've always built our technology to drive without the map, that doesn't affect us. That's how our algorithms perform all the time. And that has given us, I believe, a tremendous advantage over others who have taken the more traditional route of using really high detailed HD maps. Because those maps go out of date, they're also very expensive and very hard to build. And our approach, I believe, will allow us to expand geographically much faster and at lower cost than any of our competitors in the long run. You mentioned uh, your time at Auto and Uber and, and Google. Is the map uh, aspect something in particular you took from your time at Auto, and uh, and maybe more generally, what what are the lessons you learned from from Auto that you kind of take forward in, into everything you're doing today? Well, Auto was the first foray into trucking, so we learned a lot about vehicle dynamics and control. Certainly, there's a lot of differences between cars and trucks. Most people would say that that's fairly obvious. They're a lot bigger. They're a lot heavier. They handle differently. They have different considerations for how they drive, different uh, distances that they want to be to other objects, uh, other vehicles out on the roadways. So there was a lot of initial learnings just about the vehicle itself, about the trucking industry. To be, to be fully transparent, I was not super familiar with the trucking industry when we started Auto. I thought the application was great. I thought there was a real business use case to build upon. And I thought there was a real need within the industry, but I had never been in a truck before and I'd never actually experienced it. So in the early days, we, we were really just exploring the space of what it was like to put an AV system on a truck. What is it like for steering? What are the different modules? How do the brakes work? Um, how uh, do you start to cope with different fields of view? Because traditionally in the robo-taxi space, you always see that one central spinning 360 degree sensor. It's typically a LIDAR with 360 degree cameras. You get one snapshot of the entire world around you at one time. And you can really anchor to that central sensor. Even if you have auxiliary sensors other places around your car, it all anchors to that one kind of spinning device, usually a LIDAR. Truck, that goes out the window. You can't see behind you. There are height restrictions on the, on the size of the, the vehicles. So you can't even put them on the very top. You have to put them forward on the vehicle because of these height restrictions. And so all of a sudden you can't see behind you directly. You can't see necessarily directly to the sides because you're so tall. There's, a big, there's big blind spots. You learn a lot about 
where to place sensors, how to construct a field of view that allows you to still make the decisions that are important for safety and maneuvering and making progress um, towards your destination. So there was a lot of early basics, going back to basics, that that was important to do in the auto days that was experience that I was I was really able to, to take with me when when we started Kodiak. Okay. That kind of brings up a, like a more fundamental question. Obviously, today, some of your competitors are, are, are building virtual drivers that, that they believe are very versatile, that they can deploy on anything from a, a minivan to a delivery bot to a class eight truck. And you're, you're obviously, you know, very truck specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, that the differences between cars and trucks are, are, are obvious. So what, you know, is, is it possible to build a, a system that's versatile and, and why did you opt to not go that path? I think theoretically it's possible. It's certainly not impossible. Humans do it, right? Truck drivers also drive passenger cars. They drive minivans, they drive a Honda Civic and it all works. And most people would say, well, you know, they're, they have steering wheels and they have a, a gas pedal and a braking pedal. And so surely there must be enough commonality that it's, it's really the same problem. And you really have to peel back the layers of the onion to start to see from an autonomy perspective why this is really different. But I do believe it's possible. But the question is, is it efficient? If you're trying to develop a generic system that can handle all the use cases, by definition, you have to solve all the specific use cases from each of the different uh each of the different platforms that you want to work on. Meaning if there's some grand unified overlap of all the challenges that trucks, minivans, passenger, you know, urban environment cars have to deal with, and you drew a big Venn diagram, as an example, there's going to be a lot of overlap. I agree with that. But there's going to be some parts that are different in each one of the areas. And so if you're trying to develop a system that covers everything, you are, nest- you are by, I would argue by definition, making the problem harder. If you're going to work on a frontier technology, something that's never been developed before and people aren't even sure is possible, my philosophy is that you should try to focus as narrowly as possible in the beginning. Try to develop something first that is not everything and then work your way up as opposed to starting the opposite way top down and saying, I want to solve everything. Let's build a generic system that works everywhere. Because what we found when I worked at Uber, I think this is really informed by that experience. I was one of the first technologists in this space to get the experience of trying to have one generic platform that worked on both cars and on trucks. And I was a champion of the unification effort when we got to Uber from from when we got acquired, I came in and said, I think we should combine the stacks, as it's said in the, in, in the industry. We should build a common framework around the hardware, a common infrastructure, and a common algorithmic um, uh, decision-making process so that our system has synergies. Where the car team improves the system, the truck benefits, and where the truck team improves the system, the cars benefits. Seemed great at the time, and I really pushed for it. The reality was, though, it was almost like an anti-synergy. When the trucks team would make a change, it would hurt the cars. And when the car teams would make changes that affect them, it would hurt the trucks. And so 
it was a very humbling experience for me over the course of the first year when we were at Uber, because it became very obvious where those differences were, why they were hard to solve generically. And ultimately, at the end of the day, before the truck program got got shut down, we started to pull them back apart. We started to separate the stacks because we we realized it's probably an order of magnitude or more harder to solve the combined problem than to split the problem up and solve them separately. So that I was coming fresh off that experience when I got to Kodiak. And so it was a, it was no brainer to me to say, you know what, we're going to focus on trucking and only trucking, and we're going to build our stack specifically for that application. And over time, as the technology improves and the algorithms improve and the sensors improve, then we'll, we'll build a more generic model over time. And I think a lot of the other companies that you see that are working on multiple platforms, this is their first, if you look at their leadership, this is their first time trying to build a common platform for multiple, sorry, a common framework for multiple platforms. And I think if they were being honest that they would say, it's actually a real challenge. Obviously, it sells a better story. So I can understand the the desire from a marketing perspective to say that your technology works everywhere. But from an engineer's perspective, if you really want to solve a problem, you should narrow the scope as much as possible and focus only on that problem. That's that's my belief. Don, we've talked a lot about your time at at Otto and Uber and and Google to some extent. Uh, I want to go back to the beginning. How did you get interested in uh, you know, automated driving technology to begin with? I wasn't sure in undergrad what I wanted to, um, what I wanted to go into. I knew I enjoyed technology. I was an engineer. I liked math and I liked robotics. This was around the time of the first urban, uh, sorry, grand challenge, the DARPA grand challenge. And I happened to work in a, in a lab at the university of Florida where um, next door they were competing in the grand in the grand challenges, and so I got really good exposure to the kinds of challenges and problems that they were solving at the time. And it was much different then than than it is today. But that was my exposure, so I, I saw it happening. I got excited about it. There were a couple personal instances in my life that happened. I had a friend who um, passed away in a car accident on on a highway environment. And I actually got into an accident on the highway that I felt like I just barely, barely got away with. You know, I felt like it could have gone either way um, if I, if I walked away from, from that incident. And it was really the combination of these factors that made me think there must be a better way. The, you know, humans driving cars, we make so many mistakes. It's such an important piece of our our society to be able to, to get around, but there, there should be a better way to make it safe. And I bet we can do it with robot, you know, with robots. And so I pursued a career. I went to Carnegie Mellon, the Robotics Institute, specifically to focus on self-driving. That was my aspiration. At the time, nobody was thinking about industry. Nobody thought, oh, we're going to go and deploy this in the, in the next 10 years. It was really research-based. I wanted to become a professor. I wanted to run a lab. I was going to get grants and, and have students. Like That was my path in life. And when I got to CMU and I was working with Chris Ermson and, and a couple other great folks there, that's when the Google project was conceived. And I had no, no part in conceiving the project, but fortunately for me, um, I got the opportunity to go out to California and start working at Google. Um, and it really took off ever since. And I've dedicated my entire life to this technology. I truly believe in the importance of deployments 
of autonomous technology that I believe in the safety benefits that it's going to bring. I, I believe that it's going to bring drastic improvements to the, to the efficiency of our roadways. It's going to reduce the cost of transportation across everyone's life. And so I'm super excited to, to have been a part of it. And hopefully in the end, I, I can say that, that uh, I made a difference in, in, in getting it out there. Don, give me a picture as, as we kind of wind down here. Where is Kodiak today in July 2021? I know that in recent weeks, uh, I can't believe we haven't even gotten to this yet, but uh, <laughs> in recent weeks, you've gotten funding from BMW iVentures and Bridgestone. And, and how does that kind of pave the way to, to do the things that you just talked about? Sure. We're, we're in a really strong position. We've built a, an amazing team we built some amazing technology. I think we have some of the best technology in this industry. I would put our, our uh, Kodiak driver head-to-head -head with anybody else's technology. And we've been really capital efficient along the way. We've spent, I think, I believe, a lot less than everyone else has to do it. And we've really pulled on a very experienced team in order to get there. That being said, it's no secret that in this space, you need great partners, you need great relationships. Um, you need to learn from a very established ecosystem. And so bringing on strategic partners like Bridgestone, uh, who's been in the freight and trucking space from, for all of time, has great relationships across, uh, across the industry. Um, and we can really learn and, and help together build safety technologies specifically related to tires uh, that will propel autonomy uh, into production and, and into the future at scale. BMW, uh, another great partner for us. Um, it, one of the things that is, I think, important to note about these recent investments is that there was a lot of heavy technical diligence that were, was associated with it. B BMW, for instance, has their own uh, autonomy program at various levels, and they brought their autonomy engineers over to uh, our office to, to vet the technology and to to ask tough questions about how we were approaching this and how, how we were developing it. And as a technologist, I really appreciate that. I love geeking out about it. I love talking about it. But the what I think it shows is that there's really good third-party validation from uh, technology players in the space who have really come into Kodiak, looked at what we're doing and said, yes, this is the right way. This is what makes sense. And these are the folks that, that, I, wanna, that I wanna team up with. Um, so the, the future looks bright. Um, you know, we don't have any other specific funding announcements uh, to make today, but there's uh, certainly uh, great announcements coming in the future. We're working on building our commercial partnerships. We've been moving commercial freight since mid-2019. We're moving freight every single day on our routes between Dallas and Houston. We recently announced that we're expanding to Dallas to San Antonio um, we're going to be expanding more broadly beyond that in the second half of this year. So we're definitely in a growth stage. We're feeling very confident about the technology we've built and the decisions that we've made along the way that will allow us to get to the next level. And now we're really focusing on the redundancy and the safety case, proving that our system is actually going to meet the bar, that it's going to be able to drive as well as human drivers. That's what the next couple of years uh, have in store. And uh, I'm really excited. Don, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thanks, Pete. It's always a pleasure. Pete, that sounds like a fun conversation with Don Burnett. What's coming up next week? Next week, Leslie, we'll be talking to Riley Brennan, general partner at Trucks Venture Capital. I guess I should mention that 
since we just had an episode about trucks, uh, Trucks Venture Capital does not invest exclusively in trucks, but uh, they are investing in the future of transportation. And they recently opened a, uh, a second major fund. And Riley will be on to tell us more about that. But for today, that's it. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. And we will be back with Riley next week.